listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. touch on the idea of safety and what keeps us safe. Maps tend to keep us safe. Territories threaten us. And so if we can kind of extrapolate a little bit from that lovely quote, the map is not the territory. To give uh, Alfred Klebisky his uh, his due here, the brilliance in this line as it appro- as it uh, applies to a stillness practice is that the map is precisely the thing that allows the mind to filter the entire experience of territory. Okay, and it's not that it's bad. But if we confuse the map with the territory, which is very natural to do, we inhibit the natural expression of awakening. We inhibit the opening that we're actually endeavoring to support. Another way we say this sometimes in Buddhism is we it's very important for us not to confuse the finger with the moon. If we're pointing at the moon, in other words, not confusing the finger or the person that's pointing to the moon with the moon itself. With awakening itself, it's important that we do not confuse the teacher or the teaching with the actual opening. And so, so much of what we're really trying to do is to keep us from being in that safe place of confusion. I know that may sound kind of odd or paradoxical, but the safe place of confusion is that very place that is interested in the interpretive analysis, the categorization, the uh, what is a, what does a satori or enlightenment experience feel like. Uh, uh, what am I going to see when I'm awakened? How am I going to be different when awakening? Stuff like this. And these thoughts inhibit the real work from occurring. They keep us safe, oddly enough. It's very natural for it to happen, but it's something for all of us to be highly sensitized highly highly aware of this tendency for safety of this tendency for interpretation for filtering whatever the experience might happen to be Suzuki Roshi the individual who started the San Francisco Zen Center always used to refer to Buddhism 
as a general house cleaning of your mind. And this means a whole bunch of different things in lots of really cool ways, but to me, I always interpreted this in relationship to at least what we're talking about tonight as a way of really organizing that which is functionally comfortable. It might be really comfortable, in other words, to have a messy house. You know where everything is, but you know you don't want to order it because you know why put why put the effort in? Well, indeed, why put the effort in? Why? Why would we ever want to clean up a house if we're functionally okay with its mess? I'll put it another way, and maybe it'll make sense. When we slow our mind down in meditation, we get into this really amazing situation where it's as if we have stilled the waters of our mental flow. And in that stilling process, we begin to recognize that, oh my goodness, I can actually see to the bottom of this stream. I can actually see what blockages, what stones, if you will, metaphorically, are in the way of the free flow of this stream. As a matter of fact, that stone right there in my stream of of mind is creating an eddy where I tend to get caught. What's the way to undo that situation? To actually remove the stone. So to recast Suzuki Roshi's quote, essentially what he's saying is, Buddhism is removing the stones to allow a free flow of your most sacred expression. Does this kind of make sense? The difference? In other words, if we have a house cleaning of our mind, what we're doing is we're actually lifting up the rug and sweeping out from underneath it as opposed to sweeping it under the rug. If we sweep stuff under the rug, eventually we trip on the detritus underneath it. House cleaning of our mind is the stilling of the mind so that we can see where we're getting stuck. And this is very hard to do, especially when we lead a life that's so filled with attachment. Sometimes we're so attached to things in our life that we can't recognize the attachment. It's very common. So the stillness practice allows us to identify that mess in our house. Another way of putting this little personal story, when we would sit for um, Sashin, we would have these little Oriyoki sets where we would you know, have this very prescribed way of eating. It was almost like a, 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 a dance. It was really cool because you had to unpack them in a certain way, and then you had these uh, intricate hand signals to the people who were serving you, and I always screwed it up. 
and I started laughing most of the time, which was really embarrassing because everybody else is like, you know, like shut up and be mindful. And I was, I was just cracking up because I spilled, you know, soybeans everywhere. But anyway, uh, <laughs> such is my life. Uh, that's, m that's my map. <laughs> Not my territory, but my map. Anyway, at the end of the meal, we would always take these little, we had these little wiper cloths that we would, you know, wipe, uh, wipe our um, uh, chopsticks off with, our spoon off with, the bowls, we'd wipe them out. And I got to tell you, by like day two, and I'm sure this is just because I, I wasn't very good at it, but that thing looked so disgusting. That little, little rag looked so awful. And uh, I was kind of concerned that I, I was perhaps like, you know, going to give myself some horrific you know, bacterial disease or something like that as I'm sitting there on my cushion, which would be good to practice with, I guess, but man. And uh, oddly enough, the the, uh, the guy who was running this particular sashin made the point that the Buddha looked at at our minds. He, he made this uh, 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 statement or part of this teaching. It was about looking at our mind as a cloth that is unstained. As you still the mind, it's like you clean it. You take all the stains off. Does this kind of make sense? And that way, when you start taking the stains off, when you soak it in bleach, <laughs> when you soak it in bleach, the smallest drop of a carrot or a little bit of yogurt or, God forbid, strawberry shows up. But when it's all messy, like it was for me, could I notice any new stain on that? No, not at all. Because it was just, it was already a wreck. I was so attached, I couldn't recognize the attachments, so to speak. So this general house cleaning of our mind is about getting unsafe. It's about facing the mess. It's about looking at the dirt. It's also about not getting angry at the dirt, not developing some type of relationship to the dirt in this house that's negative. It's simply dealing with it and then moving on. It allows for a deepening of your life allows for a broadening of the authenticity with which you face your life. So how do we do that in our day-to-day? -day? Easy enough on a cushion. Easy enough in a monastery. It's no different. In our day-to-day, we watch where we get stuck. We watch where we get tweaked. We watch our desires. We may desire something to add. We may desire something other than what is being offered. But that desire is a way for in us to enact this perceived safety that is never really there. It also means that we are perpetually coming at our life from a position 
of lack. I'm not enough. This will make me better. I'm not enough. I better get away from that because that's going to deplete me even more. Studying our desires becomes absolutely key. sometimes very helpful to look at the whole concept of desire as not only things that might make us feel safe, but also, and particularly, another person. A relationship might make us feel safe. She makes me feel complete. He makes me feel special, whatever this might be. This type of desire while not bad in and of itself, if it has a quality with which you find yourself getting whipped around by it, then it's getting in the way of your awakening. It's some of that dirt that you might want to think about cleaning. It's an eddy in the flow of your consciousness that's taking you somewhere else. Another space where we can find this dirt in the house of our mind is the very simple idea of knowing how much is enough. How much is enough? What is enough? Just that question can really open up some amazing things for each of us. How much is enough, really? Really? How much is enough? Um, the father of Soto Zen, um, that particular lineage, Dogen, uh, used to say, if you don't know how much is enough, I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but if you don't know how much is enough even in heaven, you will be discontented. The next space that I think helps us in this mind cleaning is having a stillness practice. Every day, can you find space to be consciously still? Can you know stillness through that practice? Does that practice just give you a break so that you can then go on and do what you habitually do? Or does it actually inform you with something deeper? With that in mind, diligence. Diligence is so important. Having diligence to just, you know, with tenderness, facing your commitment to stillness, to awakening, to moving those rocks out of the river, to cleaning out what's underneath the rug, not sweeping it under the rug. Can you be ceaselessly engaged in your attentive awareness? Can you be soft while you're doing it? 
I remember how stunned I was as a kid looking at, at the base of Yosemite Falls, looking at the stones that were granite that had been softened. This granite had been smoothed over by the relentless pounding of water. It's exactly like that. We have diligence like that. That's soft, tender, caring, life-affirming, pure, clear. But it keeps hitting. Tirelessly, it keeps hitting the rock. Smooths it over. Next one is pay attention. Pay attention. Don't ignore. Don't file stuff away and not deal with it. Deal with all of it. You might want to deal with it carefully. But deal with it. And then move on. Witness. Witness your experience another great way of saying that. Just witness your experience continually. Along these ideas of uh, house cleaning, um, practicing stillness, uh, Dogen also said that stability sweeps a scattered mind. And the stability kind of happens as we make clear with diligence and tenderness that we're going to find stillness every day. We also want to cultivate wisdom. And we cultivate this in ourselves as well as other people. We listen. We really, really listen to other people. We walk miles in their shoes. We watch carefully the experience that we are having and that others are having. This helps release us from our own contracted sense of who and what we are. We recognize that we actually are the substance and essence of all others and they actually are the essence and substance of us. And in that meeting right there, things blossom. A new communication happens from that place. An awakened communication happens that is automatically caring. It automatically lacks the hollowness that some discussions can have. It's deep. And it's often silent. It can also make lots and lots of noise. So to review these eight steps to awakening sounds something like this. Um, this house cleaning of our mind. This, this space that Dogen actually was pointing us toward. We have few desires. We have a few of them. Get really clear on what's important, in other words. We don't get pulled and pushed by our senses when this happens. Number two, know how much is enough. 
really know that. How much is enough? How much do I, quote, need? How much do I need? Number three, no stillness. Capital K, no. No stillness. Begin to relax into that state of total stillness. So much so that you recognize it's not a state. It's actually the core of everything. Number four, diligence. Like water. Like water on stone. Be diligent. Number five, pay attention. Witness your experience in relationship to everything else. Number six, have a practice. Practice meditation. Keep sweeping the scattered mind. Keep clearing the rocks out of the natural free flow of your awareness. Number seven, cultivate wisdom. Listen, contemplate, continually release yourself and others out of yours, your contraction and their contraction. Let it go. Cultivate that wisdom. The wisdom that we are all one. Lastly, communicate with care. Communicate with purpose. Communicate with openness. Communicate by listening, by really listening, by seeing, by really seeing, by feeling, by really feeling the meeting that you have with the world. Those eight steps right there take us out of safety. Those eight steps right there put us on a very, very treacherous path towards the one truth that you and I and everybody else has always been a part of beyond any religiosity, beyond any mind construct, beyond any felt sense of what's right or wrong. Are you ready? Getting rid of the stones or dealing with the dirt or what what do you mean by that? Just kind of witnessing, being aware? Being aware of the dirt or the stones. Um, is usually the first step. I, I don't like using that that term, the first step, because it implies that you have to move, and you don't. But let's just for, forgive the clumsiness of the language. It's the first step is to identify. In that identification, power is taken away from the stone. Weight is taken away from the stone. Uh, the dust bunny isn't electrically charged, so it's easier to sweep it up if you can identify it. But then the sweeping or the lifting has to occur. And that can take work. And also that path in and of itself can get us caught in other eddies or in other, if we're not really, really aware of what exactly we're doing. We're very clear on our intention. If our intention is to awaken 
not only for us, but for everyone. That keeps us very clear. And that's where the vow becomes really, really powerful. And when I say the word vow, and egos hate that word, because that means, okay, now, you, now you're going to hold me to something. But if our vow is to awaken for all beings, and if we're included in that, then what happens is there's a resonant clarity of what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. And the stone becomes light. The dirt becomes easy to clean. It's not like gum that you have to scrape off a hardwood floor or something like that. It becomes You can just wipe it up. All of this is just a map. It's not the territory. But as we identify it and then engage from that open, surrendered space, then the cleaning or the lifting becomes simple. If, on the other hand, we identify it and then we create a story around it, we hate that. Guess what? The stone's heavy. I wish it were another way can't scrape it off the floor. The general house cleaning of our mind becomes nearly impossible. The lifting of those stones becomes nearly impossible. And then we get frustrated with practice. Then we get frustrated with everything. And guess what? Ego's in charge. Ego has a war to fight. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's witnessing, and some of it is letting go. I mean, identifying... So yeah, if you wanted to make a little, make it, if you want to make a map, the map would be witness. Okay. Mm -hmm. Be clear in your identification. Okay. And in that clarity, there needs to be radical honesty, right? So witness, become radically honest about what it is that you see, and then engage from openness. And whatever happens in that engagement is the lifting, is the cleaning. So that's just the map. Not the territory, but it's the map. Right. Yeah. I'm just curious when you talk about the map to enlightening and all the, the steps that there are, the different parts, which would be listening to Dharma talks, reading, meditation. Um do you need to have all those parts? That could a person just meditate every day, just be still and reach a point of enlightenment? Yeah, in fact, there's a tradition of uh, what we, we call the, uh, individuals who have been touched with that type of grace, Pratyeka Buddhas. A Pratyeka Buddha is someone who just kind of happens to them. And uh, it didn't come with uh, what we would call a dharma, you know, transmission, or it didn't come with a um, a satori or enlightening experience, enlightenment experience that had been cultivated through, you know, the sashin process or the practice period process or a teacher-student relationship. Just boom. Um, very special people we're talking about. Very, and I don't. I mean, I know this stuff happens. It happens in you know contemporary sages have had this type of uh, this type of experience. Uh, the The risk is that um, without 
a practice oriented at least partially in some type of traditional container. It doesn't have to be a tradition, but if it's oriented at least in the practice that whatever tradition, you know, a tradition might offer, usually at that point there's a much greater chance of whatever awakening experience they might have, there's a chance that it now gets traction. That it now actually can grow consciously. There's, uh, at this point, in other words, the, the, all the preparation that has occurred in you know, like a stillness group, a group that practices stillness together, all of this preparation actually now starts to make sense. Plop, 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 plop. Oh. And that's when this huge shift in gravity can occur for that person. What often can happen with the Pradyeka Buddha is whammo, something happens, and they're like, oh, what was that? Uh-huh. I know what that is. I'm God. And instead of it being for the sake of all beings, it can get personalized because of their continued egoic inertia. An awakening experience has a tendency to stop somebody on whatever level they're evolving to on the great spiral of life. And so if they have an awakening experience and they partially contextualize it, that can happen at a very low level of their development. And as a result, those types of people can often run the risk of having huge spiritual insights, but a rather undeveloped or retarded sense of ethics, of uh, any number of things. So uh, while I, you know, awakening is awakening, but it's not. You know? I know that must make no sense, but awakening, you know, if you just if you just are sitting at home and you're doing it on your own, can you be can you be alive and fully engaged in your world? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you can, as long as the awakening involves everybody else outside the walls of your home. Wondered if the stillness of, of meditating would you could carry into your your life and with other people and sure that's the goal. I I I'm just thinking I I meditated for years after I learned TM transcendental yeah, yeah, you know and sure. I just meditated that was it and um, I don't know if I was enlightened or not but it certainly made me look at things differently. I was calmer. Great. I see you're, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head. Then it becomes a very useful tool, right? Mm-hmm. Meditation becomes a useful tool that you can use in your world. You're a little bit calmer and so forth. Mm-hmm. But the minute you bring that useful tool into a community where other people are using useful tools, and it's not about your life. It's about the life. It's about truth which is something way beyond the personal, mm, mm-hmm. then we're talking about an entirely different game. One of the great things about TM is it tended to get people kind of invited to the party. A lot of people didn't stay at the party. Mm-hmm. It became personal. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about here is totally impersonal. And that happens only through community. Okay, I see that. Yeah. Oh, 
I guess I had two questions, but one was about enlightenment. If when you get, a, I guess I'm confused about what you're saying. I mean, I had that experience where I had that sense of it, but I it just do people get that and then that's where they are. They are able to maintain that for. I mean, or Never. are they? Does it does it happen and it's it's obscured again or it's or typically what happen they never are able to hang on to it permanently because you can't hang on to anything mm-hmm. that's born in time permanently anything that's born in time dies right and so that's like one of the big letdowns for people is they have this thing that just bursts within them that they can't possibly contain mm-hmm. and then they hum for a while and they stay in that hum sometimes for weeks months years even and then it's gone and it's like how the hell do I get that back Mm -hmm. but the relationship was actually the relationship with the experience they literally then kind of attached to the experience and in the attachment they defiled it instead of letting the experience point them towards the territory, they confused it, the map, with the territory. The awakening experience itself is only a map. It's not the territory. It shows us what's real. Mm-hmm. We still have further to go <laughs> to embody that, right? So it shows up, and then we have to Integrate it. And that's a gentle process. It's not only, you know, sitting practice, but it's also recognizing when you're at your most peaked in any type of situation, you can recognize that, huh, well, I know what's real. I've experienced what's real. And this is real too. But man, that was so much more expansive than this contraction. Right? Mm-hmm. And so with that practice, your center of gravity goes from being like caught here into being able to observe everything that's happening all the time with an attentive, diligent awareness. And diligently attentive awareness, I guess I should say. Okay, that helps. I, my other question I think yeah. was mostly about Barbara's because I was aware tonight when I was meditating how most of what I was observing I could quantify down to one major (laughs) feeling. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking, when you started talking about rocks, I was thinking, "Hmm, how would you just move it? But I guess what you were saying is to put your intention on it. One of the things that I deal with as a a meditator sometimes is, is physical pain. And my physical pain... Um, is just intensity that I'm trying to move away from. Pain is a name I give to that experience, right? I don't want to get away from the pain. I want my relationship to change. All that is is a desire. What's the desire? To not be here. Guess what? I'll always be right here. So, in other words... My desire to be comfortable is getting in my way of meeting what is. Which is pain? Mm-hmm. 
when we can meet the pain. Or the whatever, anxiety exactly. or the this or the that. Yes. When you can meet that fully, the fearlessness naturally kind of starts going. The confidence starts surging. This pain won't kill me. As a matter of fact, I can tenderly hold its expression. Wow. That changes lives. Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> I don't really um, have anything to ask. I just want to say that this is like my second time coming here. Yeah. And it's really, it, um, the first time I came, yeah. I really got into it. And it like changed a lot of things that I took into consideration in my life. And it made me calmer. And um, so I'm starting to meditate at home now. Oh, good for you. And yeah. So. Good for you. Keep it up. Th- thanks. <laughs> <laughs> been a while since i've been here too so uh first i really want to share a really quick quote that reminds me so much of your quote about the map um and i know i don't really have it right but i'm sure you actually know the real quote i probably don't i probably don't know the real (laughs) i I destroy quotes weekly so from uh what i understand is that the buddha once said that that the goal is not the destination itself but the journey itself and uh, I think about that all the time. So, you know, there's so often, I think everybody kind of wants to shoot for yeah. that enlightenment, yet right. we forget that it's actually right here. It's the practice. Exactly. The practice is the realization. Right. I think they actually say that in the Torah, too. There's something, mm-hmm. uh, something uh, like that in the Torah, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. My religious scholarship is quite weak, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such a great, great thing to note. It's true. It's this journey. And uh, the second is... Uh, it's actually funny because I was actually just speaking with my my future brother-in-law last week about uh he's actually from Iran he's Muslim, and um, we were talking about what separates people like Muhammad, Jesus Christ, the Buddha, uh, from normal human beings, and we said it wasn't quite just the enlightenment or the knowledge that they had itself, but also the humility of it, and um, I think oftentimes now that so much is expanding for me um, within meditation through uh, through learning of the Dharma is you meet people and you hear their problems or you hear you hear some of their opinions on things and you can't help but feel like that's kind of twisted and I know this has to go back down to the ego but how do you separate that from almost a feeling of self-righteousness or because sometimes I actually, I mean, I really do feel that I'll say like, oh, I know better than that. Mm-hmm. But you know that's wrong, but I mean, it just, it, I guess I'm kind of in a stump. <laughs> They're echoing the very same quality in you that feels like you know what you know. Because they're just turning around and they're saying, man, that's screwed up. This guy's screwed up. And then that unconsciousness if you let yourself get caught by it, allows you then to recognize separation and say, man, that guy's screwed up, right? So recognizing that someone who's at a place of intense contraction, they're simply mirroring that in us which is intensely contracted. And I would add to the argument um, about the Buddha, Christ, Muhammad, and so forth, What's what separates them, you ready for this? Nothing. Nothing. 
Any separation is egoic. Non-separation, deep singularity, unity is what characterizes them. Their recognition that it's all one thing. Right? And the minute you, me, anybody else looks at the Buddha as an ideal or Christ as an ideal is the minute ego runs with it. Because then the impossible ideal is something that ego never has to worry about being threatened by. Therefore, it is safe. The real danger is that you could actually become a Buddha. That's the most dangerous thing. What's even more dangerous than that is that you already are a Buddha. Buddha. 